children may be dismissed to a junior church at this time. And we are going to look at a few passages today uh, dealing with the first Adam and second Adam. If you want to turn in your Bible, there's going to be selected scriptures, and the first one's going to be from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you can do that. We're in a sermon series dealing with answers in Genesis, or really more, impor- uh, more specifically, how Genesis is important for the whole Bible. How Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to the rest of the Bible, are foundational to our faith. And so in that manner, we're going to talk today about the first Adam versus the second Adam. In other words, as in Adam, the literal Adam and Eve, the first man, we all die. He was a type pointing to Jesus in Jesus being the second Adam, the, the archetype. We all are made alive. Think about, though, life and the stark contrast between life Seeing something alive, like a rose, versus something that is dead, like a dead rose. Or this specific illustration. In Christ in the Meaning of Life, German theologian Helmut Thielicke tells the story of a young soldier who reached out to pick a bouquet of lilacs and uncovered the half-decayed body of another soldier beneath the bush. He drew back in horror, not because he had never seen a dead man before. He was a soldier. But he drew back because the screaming, screaming contradiction between the dead man and the flowering bush. A rose bush. Beautiful. Yet there was a dead man behind it, a soldier. The leaky notes that the soldier's reaction would have been different if the man had come upon a dead and faded lilac bush instead. Quote, a blooming lilac bush will one day become a withered lilac bush. This is really nothing more than the operation of the rhythm of life, but that a man should be lying there in a decayed condition. This was something that simply did not fit. And that's why he winced at the sight of it. We can only understand the mystery of death if we see it through the lens of Adam's rebellion against God. Adam's rebellion against God. We are pilgrims who traverse an empire of ruins with death as our fellow traveler. Unable to rid ourselves of this cheerless companion, we attempt to rehabilitate it instead, treating death as if it were a neighbor and not a trespasser. But it really is a trespasser. We clothe it in our best dress and apply makeup to its waxen features. Laid out before us in stiff repose, death looks as if it were merely asleep. And if we do not look too carefully, we can almost convince ourselves that it has a beating heart within its breast and warm blood pulsing through its veins. We whisper to ourselves that it is not as alien as it first appeared. But this fool's dream vanishes the minute we attempt to embrace death finding that it repays our kiss with only sorrow and loss. Death is not a natural stage in the cycle of human development. Death is a curse, 
It's a curse. The presence of death is an intrusion. It is natural only to the extent that nature itself suffers from the stroke that fell upon Adam as a consequence for his sin. Adam, as in Adam, all die. And I'll share in a minute. As in Christ, we all may be made alive. Nature endures death, but not willingly. It groans in protest, loathing the bondage to decay which death has brought upon it. And yearning for the glorious freedom of the children of God. Romans 8.21 talks about how glorious it's going to be in heaven. Death is the last enemy. A tyrant who acts on sin's behalf and whose sway over us was finally broken at the cross. But will only be fully realized at the resurrection. Romans 5.21 and 1 Corinthians 15.26, which we're going to get into in a minute, talks about how the sting of death is gone because of Jesus. Death is our enemy, but like the law, it is also a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Death's hard lesson exposes the true nature of sin. Indeed, the law and death are strange allies in this mysterious work. In the hands of God, both the law and death act as a goad, puncturing our denial and prodding us to turn to Christ for relief from death's sting. In a few weeks, we're going to get into Romans, uh, to Genesis 3, and later Genesis 4 and 5. And one thing we see as we get into the genealogies in the Bible, they emphasize, and he died, and he died, and he died. Because in Adam, that's the first Adam, and in Adam came death. And as I hate to begin a sermon with a downer, there's also something encouraging right here. As in Christ, we freely, by his grace, may be all made alive. And we trust in him as Lord and Savior. And this is how Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational, significant, of first importance to our faith. We have the first Adam and the second Adam. Today, I want to talk about how Adam's sin points to Christ's redemption. Adam's sin points to Christ's redemption. I want to talk about how the New Testament shows how Adam was a type pointing towards Christ. Theologically, a type is an Old Testament person, object, or event that had a useful function in its own historical setting. I mean, Adam was real and important in in history. But that was also designed by God to prefigure a greater, more spiritually potent situation or person. In this case, Adam was a type of Christ since he functions as the founder of the human race. And in his action, he had a profound influence upon it. Adam, the founder of the human race, and he, but he was also the first that brought sin and death into the world. In Christ, the second Adam, who did not fail... In the garden, Adam was the garden of Eden. Christ was the garden of Gethsemane. Adam, who did not sin, I mean, Jesus, who did not sin, did not reject his mission, but went to the cross for us. 
the second Adam. Jesus is, Adam is a type and Jesus is the antitype. I said archetype by mistake a few minutes ago. Jesus is the superior antitype of Adam. And we see these types in the Old Testament. Some people find a whole lot of types. Some people find just a few, you know, these types that point to Christ, these types that point to the New Testament. In Sunday school, we just talked about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And Melchizedek is a type also pointing to the New Testament. Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem, likely Jerusalem in the Old Testament in Genesis 14. And then Jesus will be the uh, the priest and prophet and king bringing them together. So in this case, Adam is a type pointing to Jesus. Adam, in Adam we all sin, in Adam we all die, but in Jesus we can all be made alive. So my theme today is that Adam was a type and Jesus is antitype. Adam's sin led to humanity, led humanity into sin. Adam's sin led humanity into sin. But Jesus' redemption makes salvation possible for all of humanity. I want to use three New Testament passages to show the importance of the historical Adam. Three New Testament passages. So first, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Very simple, very straightforward right there. Adam is a type, Jesus is the antitype. As in Adam we all die, so, so, so also in Christ we all can be made alive. Jesus, the first fruits, the first to, to be resurrected. And as in Jesus, the resurrection, we will all also be resurrected again. For the believer in Christ who dies, which we all will, it's not the end. We will be reunited with our loved ones. And our loved ones that go on from this life in Christ are an eternal bliss. A physical, real heaven that we do not focus on enough until we are reunited with them and then we will be in heaven together. And then eventually the new heaven and new earth together. Notice how in this passage, Paul is looking back to Adam. Paul is showing how Adam is a type, as I've emphasized. 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the great chapter on the resurrection. It's really cool. In the first few verses, Paul focuses how Jesus was seen by over 500 people after he was resurrected. The proof was in that. All these 500 people, witnesses of the resurrection. So here in this section, Paul is showing that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. This speaks of the first installment, the first installment of harvest to eternal life in which Christ's resurrection will precipitate and guarantee that all of the saints who have died will be resurrected also. All of the saints who die will also be resurrected. For as one man came death, that would be Adam. As one man, Christ, comes the resurrection. As in Adam, all die. Yet we, we all die because of the sin of Adam, because of the sin. We trivialize our sin, but our, our sin is cosmic treason against God Almighty. As I've shared, I'm teaching Bible 100 at Malone University. 
which has given me a new respect for teachers because they have to all write a three-quarter to one-page paper on five chapters of the Bible every week and then write a one-page paper on another book every week. And they're supposed to turn them into my email, which I try to keep clean and clear. So I'm reading and reviewing one, and then another comes. It's like plowing while it's snowing, heavy snow. So some of these students really know the Bible, and they're writing just great things. Some of them are honest, and it's the first time reading the Bible, which I'm glad. I'm glad they're reading the Bible. I'm really glad. I'm hoping for more conversations. I'm hoping that God grows them in this venture of discipleship. But it makes us think about Genesis chapters 1 through 11 differently if we're teaching it and talking about it with an unchurched, very secular crowd. And some of them definitely are. And some of them question when you get into these chapters about death and about the flood. But the only reason we question it is because we think we are innocent. We think those that died in Genesis 6 in the flood, which we're going to get to in a few, in a, in, a, in a number of weeks, we think those who died in the flood were innocent. The Bible says the total opposite. We don't realize how sinful humanity can be, do we? I mean, maybe we do if we've lived in certain really, really extreme situations, but most of us don't. And then again, we don't realize how even a white lie, which we might think of as a, as, a, as a little sin, is violating God's holiness, God's righteousness. God is totally perfect and pure and righteous, and one sin separates us from Almighty God. And God would have been totally just when Adam and Eve sinned to say, no more, they're done. He wouldn't just to do that. We know that God is a God of justice, So what did he do? He poured out his wrath on sin, on Jesus instead of us so that we can have eternal life in him. We need that because in Adam all die and that's because of sin. We need a sin bearer. We need somebody to take our sin and it went upon God in the flesh, upon Jesus. Let's look at verses, if you're in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written. Whenever you see that, you know some, uh, Paul or the New Testament writer is going to quote the Old Testament authority, the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual, the natural, Adam, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He is comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ. Adam became a living being, right? Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Adam became a living being. Isn't it interesting? Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He is not seeing Genesis chapter 2 as just an allegory or a myth. He is seeing it as a real, authentic story. He quotes Genesis 2, 7 about Adam become a living being. Jesus gives us, but then Jesus gives us spiritual life. Paul is saying that Jesus gives us our spiritual resurrected bodies. The first man, Adam, from the dust. The second man, Jesus, 
is from heaven. Notice all the comparisons and contrasts. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. They die, right? Those in Adam die. But as is the man of heaven, Jesus, so, so also are those who are of heaven. We live. We have resurrected bodies. We will have resurrected bodies through Jesus. Paul's comparing and contrasting the first Adam who brought death versus Jesus being the second Adam bringing life. We will bear his image fit for heaven. Notice it is clear that Paul thought of Adam as a real man. More than, th- more than that, Paul built theology around Adam. Paul built theology. That means the study of God, doctrine around Adam. Adam was the prototype and Jesus the antitype. Adam was a type pointing to Jesus. I love this quote. Here's the gospel. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. You're sinners saved by grace from the holy God. One more scripture, Romans 5, 17 through 20. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you can turn back a few, a few books, actually just one book, to Romans 5, verses 17 through 20. Romans 5, Romans 5, starting around verse 11, is the main passage we usually go to for the idea of the first Adam and second Adam. And the corollary passage is 1 Corinthians 15, which we just, which we just read. And I preached on the Romans passage, so I only want to briefly look at it. This passage is extremely important for the theology of the first Adam and second Adam. The section on the first Adam and second Adam doesn't begin at verse 11, but verse 12. But I want to just look at verses 17 through 20. Actually, verses 17 through 19. Let's read that. Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if, because of one man's trespass, who would that be? Adam. If because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's using a how much more argument. Death reigned because of Adam. But how much more for those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. The one man's trespass was a sin. Genesis 3, original sin, the first sin. What was the one act of righteousness? Jesus going to the cross for us. Jesus going through his life some 33 years, sinless, fulfilling the whole law, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Messiah, going through the Garden of Gethsemane, Praying to the Father, if possible, take this cup. In other words, this, this suffering from me. But what do you pray? Not my will, but your will be done. Then he goes, he's arrested, beaten beyond recognition, mocked, shady trial, violated all the rules of trials for that time period, goes to the cross, takes our sin upon him. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Because of his one act of righteousness, we are, we, we are declared justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight. And we have life for all men.
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. In this broader text, there's a dash at the end of Romans 5.12. Because it's not picked up again until verses 18 through 19. So between Romans 5.12 and verses 18 and 19, there's kind of a parenthesis, which we're, we're kind of picking up here at the tail end of that parenthesis. Verse 17 is an explanation, and then verse 18 is an inference. Adam is a type. Again, I want to share this again. Theologically, a type is an Old Testament person, object, or event that had a useful function in its own historical setting, but that also was designed by God to prefigure a greater, more spiritually potent situation or person. In this case, Adam was a type of Christ since he functions as the founder of the human race. Adam, the founder of the human race. And his action had a profound influence upon the human race, death and sin. But Jesus, of course, is a superior antitype to Adam. I like how one source shares this. One source shares. In this passage, Paul explores the contrast between the condemning act of Adam and the redemptive act of Christ. Contrast between the condemning act of Adam and the redemptive act of Christ. They were different in their effectiveness. Different in their extent, different in their efficacy, different in their essence, and their energy. Energy. Again, verse 19 is restating the disobedience of Adam versus the obedience of Christ is restated in verse 19. Humans were made sinners through Adam's sin because he represented humanity. Before, as I stated before, we were all in Adam's loins, so to speak. But in Christ, we can all be made righteous. And why is this so important? Because it's going back to the significance of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The foundation of our theology is so important in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. I want to make some applications here and some summaries. Paul knew nothing of denying the real history of Adam. We must recognize that cutting Adam out of our Bible has consequences on the reality of sin and forgiveness. It has consequences on our theology, on our doctrine of salvation. Think about it. For us all to be saved by Christ means that we all had to have descended from Adam and Eve as well. Because Jesus, the second Adam, the greater Adam, is saving those marred by the curse that came from Adam. Again, Adam was a type and Jesus is anti-type. These texts, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 and 45 through 40 and, uh, or 45 through 50 and Romans 5, 17 through 19 show that Christ is the second Adam. This means that Adam was a type of one to come. We cannot, we must not take the real Adam out of the Bible. We must worship Christ for doing what we could not do on our own. We all failed in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. But we all can be saved through Jesus. To me, these are worship passages. Do we worship Christ for the awesome salvation which he has freely provided? Do we think about that when we take communion? We sang Amazing Grace right before the sermon. Do we realize how awesome God's grace is upon us. Do we try to earn our salvation? We cannot earn our salvation. And that is why Jesus gave us the free gift of his righteousness. 
Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. We needed Jesus to fix it. We must serve and worship Jesus who gives us his grace. Most kingdoms do anything they can to protect their king. This is the unspoken premise of the game of chess, for example. Any of you play chess? Any chess players out there? When the king falls, the game is over, right? When you're a checkmate, the game is over. The kingdom is lost. Therefore, the king must be protected in chess at all costs. Another notable example comes from the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of Normandy, D-Day, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Fascinating guy. He desperately wanted to join the expeditionary forces. And he wanted to watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. Now, that is a different type of leader, isn't it? Oftentimes, no. The leaders want to be, in today's day and age, far from the battle, but not Sir Winston Churchill. He wanted to be on the battleship, but that could not be allowed. So... General Dwight David Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the prime minister might be killed in battle. When it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George VI. The king went and told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was also his own duty as king to join him on the battleship. So then you have Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill on the battleship. You have King George VI on the battleship. And in modern warfare, you just can't have that. At this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down. For he knew that he could never expose the King of England to such danger. However, King Jesus did exactly the opposite. King Jesus did exactly the opposite. With royal courage... Jesus surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, Jesus offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all the wrong things that we had ever done and would do, completely atoning for all of our sins. The crown of thorns that was meant to make a mockery of his royal claims actually proclaimed Jesus' kingly dignity, even in his death. Jesus The second Adam, the perfect Adam, taking our sin and saving us for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the king's ransom, for Jesus going to the cross for us, Jesus doing what we could not do on our own because we are so stuck in our sin. We need and needed a savior. We could not live the righteous life. We could not live the perfectly pure and holy life. And the blood of bulls and goats was never enough. So Jesus took our sin upon yourself. And Lord God, as we began the sermon talking about death, we thank you. And we know that for our loved ones who die in the Lord, die knowing you, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. We know, Lord God, that the Apostle Paul had
been to heaven, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12. And as we see in Philippians 1, he longed to go back to heaven. We know that our loved ones who have passed from this life to the next are in unspeakable joy. As Paul said, it was things he saw in heaven too, too amazing to describe, simply indescribable. Lord, we thank you. We pray your blessings and care upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.